On the same label, you know what I'm saying? We're label mates, and I heard their stuff from their first album, and I liked it. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. I don't do anything that I don't, I don't like. You know what I'm saying? And it's called Significant Other, and to promote it, the band mounted a trio of hit-and-run guerrilla gigs this week in Boston, Detroit, and Chicago. These shows were illegal, of course, and we were in Boston to watch the behind-the-scenes scheming. Limp Biscuit, somebody in Limp Biscuit, had the audacity to say to one of our good friends, who's a very reliable source, that Slipknot fans are nothing but a bunch of fat, ugly kids. We will come here, and we will kill you! Ah, uh, hello and welcome back. I didn't think any of you would return for more Limp Biscuit, but here you are. Tonight, me and Mike talk about one of the best, or depending on your perspective, worst new metal albums of all time, Significant Other. Here at the Renegade Pop Culture Network, we only deal in the very best. You wanted the best, you got the best. This is Renegade Jukebox. And we're back. What's going on, guys? Welcome to part two of the rise and squall of Limbiscuit. This time, we've got the big one. Um, this is their second studio album, Significant Other. Now, Everybody Nick, get your red caps ready and get your jinkos out. We're partying like it's 1999 here. Hell yeah. To say that this was a big deal is really an understatement. There's a lot of baggage to go through uh, before we even touch the songs themselves. So Nick, why don't you give, give a little history behind uh, this record? Okay, so I kind of lifted this from the days of the new podcast. Big shout out to them. If you haven't heard of them, they're on Spotify and like the other big podcast platforms, I guess you could say. So one thing I've really got to stress is basically this is a brand new band that has not even existed for barely even four years at this rate. And they're just wrapping up two years of a nonstop touring cycle. And ultimately, it's mostly just underground success until they get the big chart topping single, which is a joke of a cover, which is the Faith cover. So this is where I kind of got to introduce the concept of MTV basically being the sixth member of Limp Biscuit, like for me, it was much music in Canada, but like even I would see stuff from MTV being played from played on much music at that time period. And just kind of the lead into this record was so inescapable that like even as, you know, a five year old me go just going into kindergarten that fall, it's like the hype behind this record was just inescapable. I had to I had to do a Wikipedia check to make sure which volume of now that's what I call music that I first heard uh, Nookie, and it's it's volume three, um, the U.S. volume three. So that was my very first exposure to the band in general. I think I was too young to really um, like to listen to their cover of Faith, and but yeah, you you're you're right on the money when when you said that MTV was the, un the unofficial sixth member of the band, because 
they 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 were everywhere um on oh even even matt pinfield's on the fucking album exactly like they would make constant appearances on trl i think even the 2000 mtv vma awards fred Fred durst did like a duet with christina aguilera that is how big this band has gotten at this time we will get to that in part three because it gets specifically mentioned on one song but i mean this is probably the most 1999 album ever made and you could either say that's a detriment to the record or a positive because like even you know i i kind of see some albums as yeah it can be a product of its time but can still be really good to listen to at the same time with this record I kind of had to live with it for a few extra listens just to be like, okay, am I just talking about this through nostalgia or is this worth listening to again? So to kind of set things up, we're just going to basically get into one thing I found particularly noticeable and I've kind of just found this hysterical for years and we're going to bring up everything that went into this record. We're bringing up feuds, we're bringing up MTV promo, we're bringing unreleased songs into the mix, all of it. So one of the resulting feuds from this album actually and i just find this absolutely hysterical is their feud with slipknot so one noticeable thing about the release date this album came out june 22nd of 1999 slipknot's debut literally just came out a week later one was the biggest band in the world one was an underground hit guess which bands traded places and it's not the one with the guy in the red yankees hat it's 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 almost like um these two records were like the changing of the guard but we wouldn't really see that until later yeah it's so fucking weird to me at this point though but at the same time New metal did kind of have that crossover guard where like even bands that necessarily didn't like each other, they kind of helped promote each other. Like Limp Bizkit would promote bands like Coal Chamber in the liner notes to this, and they would shout out bands like Tool or whoever or System of a Down or whoever they would tour with on Ozfest at that point, and obviously Corn. But with the whole Slipknot feud, it was Fred Durst allegedly in an interview called Slipknot fans Fat Ugly Kids, which I I can't find any concrete evidence or anything to the contrary other than, you know, old VHS camcorder footage of Slipknot doing live shows in clubs, which that is so fucking weird to say now, knowing that they're an arena-sized band. Mm-hmm. But with with that, Slipknot were basically just like on an anti-Limp Biscuit campaign at this point because, you know, in Wang's video, he kind of put it the best. Fred Durst basically just roasted half of his own fan base at that point. And and know, knowing Corey, I know that's like that, that's just one of those things you do not do. Oh, absolutely. It's one of those. It's one of those really weird feuds that 
it kind of fizzled out, but it always was still just kind of there. Like you could hear live footage of Corey doing like some, I don't know if it was like right before a song or if it was just him doing some speech or something mid set, but it was something to the effect of I'm here to talk about this shit band Limp Biscuit, and then he just lets one big fuck you out and then Joey does an awesome blast beat. <laughs> so yeah, that's it was kind of a one-sided feud, but at the same time, it, it's notable for this record when you get into it really because yeah, there was a lot of, even though this album is arguably much more I guess you could say poppier than $3 bill y'all. Yeah. It has a lot cleaner production. Yeah. It, but it, it still has all the hallmarks of new metal at this point. So more things that are notable about this record. I feel like we should mention it. And I had to include this in the intro that I edited for that. I'm editing actually for all of these episodes this album was being hyped to have an Eminem feature on it. Yeah. So the track is called Turn Me Loose. I, honestly, I, I, I listened to it earlier and the production's a little bit rough because it's, you know, a demo. But still, it is a shame that Eminem never made it onto the record. I think with a better beat, it could have, but it, it, it's not a great sounding song. It, it it does kind of feel jumbled together. Like it's not it's yeah. not necessarily coherent in terms of its production. Yeah, and lyrically, basic just long story short, Eminem totally destroys him. Oh, of course. Like literally, Eminem is doing all these complex rhyme schemes and like combining syllables, and Fred Durst is just not even up to snuff at this point like and keep in mind this is years before mmlp2 when he was doing the whole fast rap thing so you know i guess take from that what you will but i mean like that's how hype this record was that even somebody as rising as eminem wanted to be on this album you know it, it was very much a clear sign that mtv was throwing money at this thing and interscope for that matter really when did durst become the vice president of interscope was that af after this was actually released i think it would have been after this was released and it was like a big success there's nothing really concrete to really go off of but i did see one interview of some people who used to run Indigo Ranch back in the 90s and they were doing a podcast on $3 bill y'all in the making of that album and one of the one of the guys who engineered that record was saying something like we're not really sure my guess was in, they were when they were signing their deal with Interscope that they wanted more involvement with the label and that you know, I think Corey Taylor kind of put it the best that Fred Durst really is kind of a genius businessman in that sense is that, you know, if 
they ever take off they want some bigger stock in interscope records so i guess that kind of makes sense yeah nothing too really crazy to go off of but it's still so unbelievable in that short period of a time that they're just you know rising and rising and just their stars burning so hard at this point I don't think we'll ever see a band reach that level of success in that short of a time again. Yeah, it, we won't. Um, so I act, one thing before we actually start talking about the music on display here is I want to actually talk about like who does the production on this. So when I said that this thing was very clearly having money thrown at it, oh shit, are they pulling out all the fucking stops here? So obviously this record's not produced by Ross Robinson. This one is produced by a man by the name of Terry Date. Mike, can I name you some albums that Terry Date has done production for? Allow me. We have... Overkill's uh, Horoscope, Pantera's... And Years of Decay, Years of Decay 2. And Years of Decay, Pantera's Cowboy from Hell, Soundgarden's uh, Bad Motor Finger, White Zombies, Astro Creep, 2000, Songs of Love, Destruction, and Other Synthetic Delusions of the Electric Head. Long-ass title. Deftones, Around the Fur, They Did Stain, Dysfunction. Yeah enough said about that but no he produced like the majority of pantera's records and deftones like first four records and notably dream theaters when dream and day unite and Soundgarden's ladder than love bad motor finger like you mentioned slayers were repentless i mean like unearth three in the eyes of fire like the dude has had his hands in some pretty stellar metal records yeah, so getting getting Terry Date to produce significant other is it's a big deal. Oh, and then getting the mix. So uh, a little known record producer by the name of Brendan O'Brien actually did the mix on this record. So allow me, Soundgarden, super unknown mixer, Pearl Jam's versus Vitology, No Code, Yield. And as well as Binaural, he did the mixing on. Did production work for Rage Against the Machine's Evil Empire, Stone Temple Pilots, Tiny Music. From 2009 alone, Killswitch engages self-titled and a little prog classic called Crack the Sky by Mastodon. That's, that's some pedigree right there. Yeah, they clearly want to make this record sound. So I guess with that in mind, do you mind if we tear into the music? Let's. Okay, so the the intros fluff. The let let's just be honest. The intros just fluff for them to walk out on stage too. Yeah, and the outro is literally the same thing but longer. 
yeah except in this case with the outro they actually use that whole thing where instead they just go you wanted the best then go buy yourself the motherfucking backstreet boys cd because in this house it's limp motherfucking biscuit and then it just continues then we actually hear the first bit of music being played on here and holy shit that snare hit john otto man he gets this song going right right from right from the jump just like this is not a particularly heavy song at all really but like i was saying as 1999 as this album is sonically this still sounds really fucking good like i could see this being even passable by today's standards i would agree with that i i think the best way to describe the difference in quality between three dollar bill y'all and significant other is comparing Kevin Smith's clerks to mall rats. Just, just the difference in the budget and, uh, and the scope of, of what they're working with. It's, it is very noticeable. Yeah, and we, we can't really do an episode of any of these without mentioning how great West Borland is. The, his riffing on this thing when it needs to be subtle, it's subtle, especially on like the verses, but like for the main riff and the chorus riff, he's bringing his A game. Like he really wants to get inventive and creative with this record. I'm pretty sure this is one of the songs he's playing with a seven string on. Huh? So I, I, I can't really get into like tunings or what equipment he would have been using, but like now Wes sounds great on this. So it's mostly just, I'd say Wes and John are probably the best standouts on this track. Like really on most of these songs, every member really gets to shine. Yeah. And now we got to talk about our red cap Yankee wearing. I, I that was so poorly planned and phrased our uh, red Yankee cap wearing front man of the hour. He's honestly not bad on this, like not bad at all. It mostly just because it is kind of more of a party song to introduce the record really. So like, I can see this going over well in the live setting too. Yeah. That, that's basically what I had in, in my notes. Like most of these songs feel like they're written for the stage, which is, which, which is fine because Fred Durst, like say what you will about his, um his talents as a songwriter, but as a performer, a lyricist. <laughs> yeah, as, as a lyricist, he, he can be hit or miss. But as a performer, the one thing he has that like not a lot of metal front men have is charisma. Like he has that in spades. He does have it, but it's also kind of like this anti charisma at the same time. Because, like, throughout most of this record, and we were kind of mentioning this with the intro and the outro, they're basically just playing into the concept of, yeah, we're fully aware you hate us, and we're not going anywhere. And, so, he, and, he, and he made it work. Yeah. Um, I can't really think of anything else to say about Just Like This, so do you want to get into The Showstopper? Yeah, the showstopper is like I said. Um, I first listened to Nuki on um, Volume Three of the American version of "Now That's What I Call Music," 
And this is the first official single and the first uh, music video released for the record. And this this is like kind of the perfect like encapsulation of what Limbiscuit sounded like at this time. Yeah, it's the most 1999 thing ever. But at the same time, it's it's kind of befuddling to think that they go from three dollar bill, y'all to this like that doesn't make sense to me how a band that puts out a record as abrasive as three dollar bill y'all and then two years later oh shit they're the biggest band in the world now it, yeah it's, it's it's almost like we skipped a chapter in their story yeah it's so unbelievable to me um before we even really talk about the music video let's actually just talk about like the song itself really so for one thing one of the things that i really love about the mix on this is in especially if you're just wearing like regular earbuds as opposed to headphones one of the cool things you can do and they actually do this live is that that's not john otto doing that little drum intro that's actually a sample dj lethal is doing and then he'll do that boom ba-ba and kind of like dj mix it just so that way it kind of spices things up and then you hear the subtle keys from i believe that is scott borland west borland's brother doing that little section but no it would be that and then live then wes would go into that guitar riff which he's doing like He's basically pulling a sound garden with the tuning and just coming up with his own weird, unique tuning for this track. That, that That's always what I've loved about Wes's guitar work is he just kind of does whatever feels right for that particular track. He he just finds that groove and and just sticks with it. Oh, he's basically playing a four string guitar on this thing. Like, it's not like a bass. Like, he just uses like real i think one string is actually like a lower uh e a d g b i think it's a lower b string from a bass for like what where the e string would be and then like heavy gauge regular guitar strings and it's just a four string guitar that he uses on this track and really every member in terms of just like general performance on the song gets their chance to show off. Like even like little bits of Sam gets to show off in the mix. And actually my favorite part of the song really is actually the middle bridge section right before it goes into the last chorus. I actually think that's where the song gets to shine the best because you get to have DJ lethal do like some cool sample work amongst Wes's guitar noodling. And just, it just keeps building and building and building before it just smacks you with the chorus one last time. Yeah. Like that bridge is good for pretty much everyone. Oh, yeah, it it just keeps building and building and building it until, like you were saying earlier, it was designed for the live show for people to go nuts to. Uh, the only problem is that the lyrics are, what the fuck are you doing, Fred? <laughs> so I'm, I'm not going to even pretend I understand the lyrics to this. Do you want me to explain it? Because I will. Uh, go for it. <laughs> Um, so like we were mentioning on $3 bill y'all with kind of the sexism that was going on on stuck, 
Um, so Fred Durst was dating a woman by the name of Sage at this point in his career. So kind of from what I'm gathering from the lyrics and general interviews and just things I've heard, I guess. So she cheats on him with all of his friends and then ends up just saying in the end, I, I guess I did it all for the nookie and apparently baked her a big cookie and told her to stick it up her ass. And in this case, it's, I don't think it's the Yaz. I think the Hayes are actually a sample of Scott Weiland, who we'll be talking about more on later. But yeah, this song is basically another pity me breakup kind of song, which I guess could kind of fit in with the title of this record, which I can never really get a consistent, what does the title even mean? about it but yeah that's the lyrics to nookie in a nutshell so this is just another another kind of uh break like a woe is me breakup song kind of just except the music just goes hard as it possibly can which now I guess we can probably talk about the music video and I guess some of the MTV clips from this time period. So it is kind of low-key inspired by some of the uh, gorilla gigs that they did to promote this album, actually. So what they would do is that they would not announce that they were going to play a show at a certain area, just that Limp Bizkit's doing a show in like Chicago or Boston or New York today. And we don't know where they're going to be playing. So then they basically would just slowly drip feed radio stations where they were going to be playing a show that day. Somebody would get a hold of where it was. They leak it. And then the band would show up and play, which is kind of a cool idea that I wish some people would do more often. But I'm guessing some people probably don't want to get into the whole legal side of things of doing that. Because some of these shows would actually get shut down by the cops. Yeah. Like, that's probably the only reason why we're not seeing it, like, more often. Because, like, you know, you, you don't you don't want to be charged with disturbing the peace, like, every however many months that you keep doing this. Although we're probably going to wind up discussing that. Hint, hint, nudge, nudge. Um, so as for the Nookie video... I would say this is probably my favorite of the four music videos that really does anything for the record. Like one part of it could actually just be nostalgia and me just kind of seeing this video everywhere. But something's kind of amusing to me about these girls basically being planted and going like, oh, we've got to follow Fred Durst all around this city shooting a music video all day. Or it could be legit. I don't know. But basically, the band has all of these guys at this gig, and they're just playing as normal without the vocals. Lucky, depending on your perspective, I guess. <laughs> and then Fred shows up with all the girls, and then the show just pops off. It, it, almost, feel, it almost feels like a modern version of like A Hard Day's Night at least on the Durst side of things, whereas the band is just kind of, 
you know, doing doing their thing until the end when, like you said, the show that that's when the show really pops off. And then I honestly wondered at the end of at the video, like like did they actually get arrested? It's obviously it's all it's all staged, but I think maybe one of the gorilla gigs that they did, maybe they got arrested at one of them because I did see one old mtv clip of just like feuds and like rockers and rappers getting arrested so and one of them had fred durst getting tattooed and talking about how cool it was to you know just talk with the cops in his prison cell so i don't know it it probably was a staged arrest but one thing that's not staged so right as nookie ends uh, there's no clever way to really introduce the next song. So it literally involves the band breaking plates. You guys know what song's coming next. Yep. It's just one of those days. Bennett. <laughs> okay. So as dumb as break stuff is, I don't know. One part of me kind of has to respect its intent and what its plan is to do. And is just to make somebody violent and rowdy and just, you know, release energy. It's, like one part of me finds that respectable in a way. Yeah, it it it, it can be a very meat-headed song. Yeah. But at the same time, like Wes really just wanted to go, like, how can I not make the most creative riff on the planet? Because it's really just him just uh detuned to d sharp i think it would be and him basically just going on the uh the second fret and then the fifth fret for the bottom two for the uh top three strings and basically him just hammering on and then hammering off for the last part and it's basically just a one chord song it, it's so simple yet so effective too. Yeah, and it really is kind of just. We will get into that when we're discussing. Just for the record, I might as well tear the bandaid off with this if you're cool with it, Mike. Go for it. So we're not gonna get into everything with Woodstock '99 in this, mostly just because. A, that's gonna be way too fucking long, and it kind of deserves its own episode. Yet at the same time, it's been kind of done to death. So what we're going to do instead, we're getting our friend Haley to do a review of the recent Netflix series Trainwreck Woodstock 99, mostly because I feel like that would be a way better outlet to discuss that entire situation. So as much as it is kind of tied into the next song and its music video and this one to some degree too. We're not getting into Woodstock really. Yeah, we'll make some references here and there, but most of our Woodstock discussion will be on a separate episode of Marquee. Let's just call that the spin-off episode. Sure. For, for now, um, you ready to talk about the music video? Because... This is basically just nothing but cameos. Oh, it's a who's who of which celebrity and basically whatever co-sign Limp Bizkit could get at this point. 
some of the cameos include no. Snoop Dogg, Jonathan Davis, obvious choice, Dr. Dre, Eminem, and shocking. his daughter. Which is shocking, especially those last three. <laughs> yeah. DJ Lethal, obviously. Who's obviously in the band. Um, Pauly Shore. Uh, still, the only good thing that man has ever done is that Futurama episode. Oh, yeah. Uh, Bam Margera. Which isn't really... I, I'm actually looking at the Wikipedia page, too. A lot of these aren't confirmed, except for Seth Green. He is definitely in the video. Some of the other unconfirmed ones are... Bucky LASIK, Striker, um, Riley Hawk. A lot of these are DJs and skaters, which this music video is so unfocused that I kind of can't help but go, what was the plan? Was it just to have fans pantomiming Fred Durst going, it's just one of those days over and over again? I guess. um... And then just having random skateboarding footage in the background. I get they kind of came from this whole skate punk thing, especially doing warp tour behind the first record, but I don't get it. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm not sure exactly um, the intention was for the video. All I know is that this was the last single they released. So um, by the time the single and the video came out, this was after Woodstock and after they were the biggest band in the world. So like either a tribute to their fans or just like just the band kind of strutting around how famous they are i i I would tend to think it's the latter in this case because i mean really every one of these music videos blew up on trl and on much music back in the day like i swear i must have seen the video for break stuff at least five times a day for a month yeah that and and Nookie got a lot of rotation back in the day. So the next track we have on the record is Rearranged. Now, like we said before, we're not going to get entirely into the whole um, Woodstock 99 because we're saving that for a separate podcast. But what I, what I can say about Rearranged is out of the four singles released for the record, this one is probably my favorite um, because the way it start the way it starts off, um, Sam Rivers, the the bassist, gets gets his kind of moment to shine. Go ahead. I would actually kind of argue that Wes also gets to shine and just kind of how genius the mix is. Because, yeah, as great as that bass line is from Sam, like, Wes does some, like, really cool kind of primus tapping on the guitar. Like, he, for the first half of this song, he does not use a pick at all. Like, most of it is, like, even during live shows to just kind of count in the bass line, Wes would just do, like, some tapping on the uh, top two strings and then, like, on the third fret of the, what would be the E string, you know obviously detuned you would basically just kind of like tap each of the notes to kind of get the melody going and then sam would come in with the bass so like in the mix on the studio version like you can kind of hear like little like guitar noodling flashes of wes not even playing with a pick really 
again, another sign of how genius Borland was. And again, how great like the production was. And honestly, even Durst really for as much crap as he gets justifyingly or not justified, he's actually generally pretty good on this song, actually. I, I usually don't love when he tries to sing, but... Not too whiny on this, though. Like, it is kind of still that woe is me, my girlfriend and I are having issues kind of lyrical content, but... At the same time, for what the music is calling for, he generally does pretty well with this. Yeah. Um, like you said, he's not, he's not too whiny. He's just kind of subdued in his uh, delivery. Yeah, that's a great way to put it. He's a lot more subdued and a lot less weaselly sounding. You know, unlike what we're going to talk about in some of the later episodes of this series, but now rearranged for what it intends to do and its delivery, it does what it does really well. And it kind of, in terms of the flow of the record, I'd say it's kind of a nice little break in the action, I guess. Yeah. Overall, I think this song is, it is a, a nice breather in between um, break stuff and I think the next one is, uh, oh, I'm broke. Yeah. Um, so, and also one of, kind of one of the genius things that I found that they did with the singles is that they had Nookie be like the big single on the album for like the summer, but like in the fall, then they have rearranged be the next single. Cause like, that's at least a good, like three months in between singles. Like nowadays you would be forgotten if you know you didn't have a single out every month basically and i guess it did kind of help um for for them that you know nookie nookie kind of started the summer then they spent the summer touring and then came back to to rearranged which now we got to talk about the music video because it is kind of impossible to talk about this music video without talking about woodstock most of this music video really is them on trial for what happened. Yeah. Like, like I said, we'll, we'll get into the details like in the spinoff, mm. but for now, like the, like the video does show like some, some headlines kind of briefly describing what, what happened um, during their set at Woodstock 99. Yeah. And it even has some more MTV cameos. It has Matt Pinfield as the judge. <laughs> I can only imagine how funny it would have been on set having Matt Pinfield telling Fred to shut the fuck up in the video and him being <laughs> able to get away with it. And now even his mom makes a cameo in the video at some point. Like I think when they're being drowned in the milk, which me not being particularly well educated, do they actually educate like execute people with milk in a tank I, like that um not that i know of um my I, guess I, is it was just to have some cool effect on video i i have to imagine that's the only reason why because i i i even thought like that was supposed to be water and it just looked like whiter because of the lighting but the fact that it's actually milk is 
Well, I mean, Wes does say it, it, towards the end of the video, right before it transitions into the, if man, if we were in heaven, I'd be kicking it with Method Man right now. But Wes does say, did we drown in the milk? I think we're dead. So I, I don't know, but like, it is a pretty well cut together video. I mean, this is the point where Fred just starts directing all of the videos for the band at this rate. Yeah, I, I think I think story story wise, um, this this one was kind of fun, Put, putting putting themselves on trial for, um, for everything that happened. I even love how one of the headlines is uh, "guilty before proven innocent." I will probably get into my thoughts more when we do the whole train wreck episode, but yeah like they they at least kind of keep it vague enough i guess to keep it open to interpretation i suppose but now i found that a lot of people shockingly took it as like them just being egotists for what happened and just you know trying to like sh i don't i don't think I'll just kind of keep my argument at this for right now until we can go into more depth on it on the spinoff episode, but they're not to blame, but they're not completely scratch free in this. I'll just put it that way for right now. Yeah. We'll, 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 we'll stick a pin in that for later. Yeah. Now to get back into the real record. So next song is actually a leftover from $3 bill y'all. I'm broke. Which, uh, yeah, this is the new, I'm going to steal the days of the new podcast joke. This is basically new metal, small claims court. <laughs> so long story short with the lyrics, people owe Fred Durst money and he's not very happy about it. And uh, he rhymes. Oh my God. The, the lyrics on this song, I can't really excuse because it is, I will actually do a dramatic reading. Fuck it. I, I, that's probably one of my bad habits on this, but this line is so bad that it kind of has to believe, be heard to be believed. Somebody's getting choked because now it's time to pay the piper. Bums are the type of shit that's in a diaper. Don't make me have to call a sniper and wipe your brains off my windshield wiper, you dirty bug. That is... On one hand, I'm grossed out by the shit that's in a diaper line, and then he tries to counteract it with some tough guy bullshit saying, I will kill you if you don't pay me. Uh... Fred Durst, ladies and gentlemen. We're not going to outright dunk on the guy for dunking on the guy's sake, but when a bad line is said, we're not going to excuse it. Um, in terms of the music side of things, I can kind of vaguely see this potentially being on $3 bill, y'all, I guess. It, 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 ha Just... it has a few um, remnants of the previous record. Yeah, mostly just with the main riff, but I kind of find with the uh, with the chorus section and the one riff West does the bound and out down the down and out. That's a pretty big new metal riff that I think a lot of people were using at that point. So, yeah, I I can see how they would have 
skeletons of this from $3 bill y'all would have been like fine-tuned in the studio. Because I think a lot of this was actually written in the studio as opposed to like pre-planned in the live setting. So, you know, I'm broke. It is kind of a, a, oh, one thing I will mention is one of the MTV clips that did amuse me was uh, they were doing something to kind of introduce Summer and they had, I forget which artist they had specifically. I know one of them would have had to have been DMX, but they played I'm Broke Live first and then they played Nookie and then they decided to blow up a boat stranding them on an island for the summer, but not really because who's going to abandon a bunch of celebrities on an island like that? <laughs> That's like some battle royale shit right there. Uh, anything you want to add about I'm Broke before we talk about what I would argue is probably the best song on the record? Um, I don't really have too much to add um it's not my favorite track on the record it it's good but i think it's a nice think song I'm, to get the energy back up yeah that that that's what it is it's it's an energy booster yeah because we had rearranged kind of be the buffer between the first three actual songs and not an intro and then we kind of got to relax a little and then okay we're right back into the action yeah i think i'm more interested to talk about the next one which which you just said was your favorite non-single, and that's Nobody Like You featuring Jonathan Davis of Korn and Scott Weiland of Stone Temple Pilots. And uh, yeah, this yeah, is so, this is um, one hell of a collab. Oh, so basically Limp Biscuit and Korn get to have a do-over for All in the Family. <laughs> so lyrically the song is kind of a mess and doesn't really have much direction to it but it is really kind of a nice mix of jonathan davis's too spooky for me kind of vocals styling that he uses on every corn album and scott wyland apparently just happened to be in the area and kind of vocal coached fred throughout most of the recording of this album and then decided hey i want to hop on this song too let's have at it and then you have this absolute new metal riffery that's great honestly <laughs> some of the whipping some of the riffing from wes is really killer on this and then jonathan sounds really good on here too scott does the chorus on this and he's incredible as usual and then John Otto gets to do like a little bit of a drum solo section towards the middle before going into the last chorus. I mean, it's a killer tune. It, I honestly don't see why this didn't get released as a single or push. Maybe it was just they couldn't get Jonathan Davis, Limp Biscuit, and Scott Weiland in the same room. But I mean, considering the Family Values tour would have been happening at this point, kind of doesn't make sense that they wouldn't capitalize on a big feature like this. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking. Like, unless they just like could not figure out logistically, you know, how to actually shoot a music video for it. Like, there's there's no reason why this couldn't have been a single. Maybe, maybe they just had a quota for how many they could release and this just like didn't make the cut. Oh, we'll get into this more when we're talking about the next record, but 
from what I understand, they got tired of playing a lot of these songs live really fucking quick. And I don't understand it because they basically only toured behind it for like six months out of an entire year. Hmm. Which I kind of find strange because if that would have happened in the 2010s or the 2020s at this rate, not, you know, maybe not so much the 2020s just with COVID and everything, but you kind of get what I mean, though. Just that things like that would probably kill a band's hype nowadays. Yeah. Um, so next track is Don't Go Off Wandering, which I also kind of would throw in a potential contender to be one of the best songs on the record, which weird story about this, and I can't even tie it into another feud that Biscuit would have gotten into. Um, so Don't Go Off Wandering was actually supposed to feature Serge Tankian from System of a Down on it. Is there any reason why uh, he didn't end up on the record? There is zero concrete anything about this feature even, like like I was mentioning. So Limp Bizkit would get into a very publicized feud with the band Taproot who shared the same management company as System of the Down and that actually resulted in Taproot getting booted off of the Family Values tour for 1999 and by that default System of a Down also got cut from the Family Values tour. I'm pretty sure that's how it went actually but that also resulted in Fredgers leaving a pretty threatening phone call, threatening to blackball all the members of Taproot just because they decided to sign a different record deal than one with Interscope and Limp Bizkit. So their feud was like the pettiest of petty. There is a reason why a lot of people to this day still have issues with Durst and it's because of shit like this from back in the day I mean Biscuit would patch things up with System of a Down to go on tour later that year and actually I have pretty vivid memories of um, my kindergarten class because my first school was in a college town actually So they were training a lot of students as like teacher's aides and everything for the kindergarten classes. So there were like at least two or three of them talking about going to see Limp Bizkit in either Montreal or Toronto. And this would have been like their first like Canadian dates ever. Oh, wow. Yeah. And it was Limp Bizkit, System of a Down, and we'll talk about later on the record, Method Man and Red Man. That's a, like, pre- that's a pretty awesome tour. Yeah, and literally their entire live show, including the... F- we might as well talk about the Family Values tour before actually talking about this song, I guess, too. Um, basically, I thought their stage show was actually probably the coolest thing at that point because like, a lot of the album art was like their stage setup. They had a big flashing logo that flashed their name they were playing like in this alien laboratory where dj lethal would be on one side of the stage and then john otto would be on another playing on like these alien platforms and 
there's this giant walkway up a staircase that Fred Durst would be standing on top of right as the curtains went up. Yeah, that, and then that, obviously that's a pretty that's a pretty cool uh, stage setup. Then obviously your pyro, your confetti, and everything. So, you know, their live show was like super hyped back in the day. Like even then, like even with all of like the stage shenanigans, like you know, that's that's how big the hype was behind this record. Um, to mention the Family Values tour lineup, by the way, before I wind up forgetting it. So we obviously have Limp Biscuit. We have Primus, who Durst would produce Lacquerhead off of Antipop. Filter, Corn on Select Dates. So that is so fucking weird to me that Biscuit is headlining above Corn. Yeah, that is weird. Uh, for the hip hop side of things, they were supposed to get DMX like right as he's about to release the album, and then there was X. But for whatever reason, those plans fell through. So it mostly was Method Man and Red Man. And then for another leg of the tour, Mop Deep was supposed to get added. And then unfortunately, there was Stained. So it's a mostly pretty stacked bill, I'd say. Mostly. Um, so I guess back into going to talking about don't go off wandering because like I could not help but you know kind of figure out where to mention the whole biscuit versus taproot versus system beef. But you know, I, I kind of find it weird that he got gutted from this record, and it's like just a few months later, Dr. Dre would put out. 2001 which was populated with nothing but featured artists yeah and i kind of mentioned this um off air but another kind of feature heavy record that came out around this time was santana's supernatural which like outside of three or four tracks it's mostly features yeah and I would personally argue, especially like that last, the and you said part, it sounds way better coming out of Serge's mouth than Durst's mouth, but at least it's not the, why you gotta be like that on stuck off $3 bill, y'all. The, the only criticism I have for the song is I wish it was Serge singing the entire chorus and not just like that bit at the end. Yeah, it would have been nice to have him be a little more prominent, but at the same time, the mixing at least kind of benefits everything because that demo version with Surge, I don't think that uh, string section would hit even remotely as hard if it was just like peppered throughout the entire song. Right. Because. Because like that first verse, if it's just the band playing, it works better. And then then second verse, have it be popping off. There is still the occasional dumb lyric, especially with the uh, the whole uh, the way you keep testing me and mentally molesting me. But it, it is still kind of that woe is me. My girlfriend broke my heart and she's the bad one in this case kind of lyrics. Fred Durst, everybody. <laughs> but yeah, uh, don't go off wandering. It is in one of the enjoyable tracks on the record I can still kind of come back to, but there is still some kind of like, what are they going for really on this? <laughs> yeah, it's like, 
it, it has some wonky elements to it, but I still overall enjoy the track for what it is. Yeah. Uh, the next track we can't really talk about without mentioning a cover that was supposed to be here. Yeah. So the title of this one is 1999 spelled nine teen 90 and nine. Yeah, um, nine and ninety are literally just the uh, numerical letters, and then it's just spelled teen as in teenager. So yeah, that is the most nineteen ninety nine way of spelling that. But the reason that is there is because this was actually supposed to be a Prince cover. Yeah. So what? So what is it exactly is the backstory behind this? Did did Prince like veto the? idea of doing this track or i think it was prince vetoing the idea of it whether it was him really hating what they did with george michael's faith cover and just going like only bad things can happen with this (laughs) either that or it's just like he's just super protective of his song which i kind of find it weird that an artist wanting to cover a song literally is just able to veto it like that i kind of find that funny in a way <laughs> not, not 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 to speak ill of the dead or anything but it does feel a little bit hypocritical for prince to be like yeah no uh, not interested when when he does like he's he's done his fair share of like of covers granted they're live and great but still it's a little unfair that you know he gets to cover other people's songs but not the other way around which you did mention to me when we did our Taylor Hawkins tribute episode that Foo Fighters actually got to do a Prince cover on as like a B-side. That's, yep. Yeah, so... And, and the other thing, too, is that they were just playing this live as if this was going to be on the next album. Like, they did it at an MTV New Year's Eve show. They were doing it as as a uh, live thing for shows leading up to the release of Significant Other. Like, they were pushing it as if it was actually going to be a featured song on the record. You know, whether or not that will see the actual light of day or not, to be determined, but... Instead, what we get is one of the most new metal ass new metal riffs I've probably ever heard, which I actually think is kind of genius on Wes's part, having the open note part just be cleanly played. And then John doing his little drum roll section, then boom, kicking the distortion. All, all I have in my notes for the song is just Limb Biscuit in a nutshell. Yeah, because basically this band and this album belong to the year 1999, and it just unabashedly embraces it. Mm-hmm. Like, it, it, this song does kind of feel a little bit like a placeholder, but it still sounds, like, good enough because of, like, the production and the instrumentation that, like, it, it still gets a pass. Yeah, I, I'd actually say it's probably, again, of the non-singles, it's probably another one of the ones that I come back to. It could be nostalgia, but at the same time, I still somewhat enjoy listening to it, especially just for that for that midsection riff, the section. 
that I would imagine back in the day would have gotten people really hyped up in the crowd. Oh, for sure. And the album becomes a hip hop record. Yep. And together now featuring Method Man and DJ Premier. Yeah, we say that because even though on I actually have the CD with me right now, even though DJ Premier gets credited as the producer on this song, it's actually DJ Lethal who came up with the beat. And even in a SiriusXM interview that DJ Premier did talking about doing production for this song, the most he really did was just that scratch section towards the end with the Limp Bizkit, Method Man, Rock in the House, y'all bring it on. The That section towards the end, that's DJ Premier. Outside of production, he's like, that. that's really his only contribution. Pretty much, but I'm not going to complain considering DJ Premier's like one of the best rap producers on the planet, along with Dr. Dre and DJ Muggs. Yeah, he's he's certainly up there in terms of like the big leagues. Oh, definitely. So, yeah. Uh, so what am I really going to say about this song that kind of hasn't already been said? I mean... Obviously, Method Man basically shreds Durst to pieces. <laughs> so, yeah, I don't really have too much to say. It's basically Method Man takes over an instrumental track meant for Limp Biscuit, And I'm completely okay with that. Yeah, I mean, especially considering the Method Man and Red Man album came out, like, just a couple months later. It is kind of a nice lead-in. So I won't complain too much. And Durst actually isn't bad here either, necessarily. It's mostly just that you're going up against 90s Method Man. Just coming off of albums like, you know, 36 Chambers and, again, the aforementioned Blackout with Red Man on it. I mean, you're kind of going up against some tough competition, but... One of the things that I do kind of find, like, okay, at least Durst seems like a fan of the music that he's into that I found really cool was uh, DJ Premier was, he was, Durst was basically just fanboying, going like, look, I know you're not a fan of my rapping, but I've got some of, like, your underground mixtapes still, um, his Street Kings mixtapes, I believe they were that DJ Premier was mentioning. And he was like, wow, he actually is like paying attention to like some underground stuff from me. And that's actually what convinced Premier to be on the album. Nice. I think I think at first he was like he was kind of like um hesitant. He's like, eh, I don't know. It feels like we're oil and water. But then eventually yeah. he's like, All right, all right, I see you. Let's do this. Yeah, exactly. And like one thing we I don't think we've mentioned very much is that there is actually like some little uh little like interludes, I guess, interludes, little skits here and there to kind of pepper out the entire idea that Limp Biscuit is the hip hop side of new metal. I mean, like right after this, they have like a little instrumental break in the middle of this that they even put in like the live show. Oh, yeah. It doesn't really like add anything to it or kind of have this running either like a running joke, really. I think they're just like 
this isn't a fully formed song idea, but let's throw it on the end of a track anyway. I mean, at least at the end of I'm Broke, at least it has kind of a funny bit where Wes is like, Fred, I, you'd better shut up or next time I see you, I'm punching you right in the face. <laughs> uh, next song, Trust, which is another $3 bill y'all outtake. I, I think like, I think this this one more more so than I'm broke feels like it it could have come from the three dollar bill y'all. They actually use parts of this and show me what pretty much the entirety of show me what you got. They would use the uh, da-na-na, part of trust and then go right into show me what you got on the uh, ninety eight family values tour. Oh, nice. So again, it's another Durst has problems with other people and he will beat them up track. So, you know, it's not new metal, small claims court, but I mean, at least in terms of just, you know, coming off a track, like end together. Now, again, the flow of this album knows when to, you know, keep the energy going, stop for a few minutes to give the breather, the audience a breather give them a few chances to be like okay let's catch our energy and then go back into the heavy stuff yeah i think i think in terms of um the song arrangement they had the right idea oh absolutely uh i don't really have too much else to say about trust other than yeah just it's another heavy song to get back into the heavier side of things basically whatever whatever i would have to say about trust i've said already about most of three dollar bill y'all yeah that's fair i i'm actually just realizing right now we totally just skipped over the end together now video <laughs> oh re- really quick like the the, vid- the video is great although i kind of goofed because the video that i watched was um it, it had the new old songs version of end together now which, no, we will not be covering that remix album. I am not listening to seven remixes of the same goddamn song on a 16-track album. Yeah, if you, if you, want, if you want a better um, remix album, Linkin Park's reanimation is right there. Or for the heavier side of things, go with Remanufacture by Fear Factory. Exactly. Or Fear is the Mind Killer, even. Um Okay, unfortunately, we got to get into some right-wing territory with the next song. <laughs> and I, I mostly say that because of the guest feature on it. Um, num- number 12 uh, is uh, No Sex featuring Aaron Lewis. L- let's at least get the positives out of the way. Um one of the things that I really do like about this again is the creative West riff, the way that opening part is cleanly played and like the tone and effects he's using, I think is really fucking cool sounding. And it is pretty unique, especially amongst the unique riffs on this record and throughout the song, uh, Wes's brother, Scott, like I mentioned earlier, there's some cool little keyboard bits sprinkled in throughout the verse sections. So at least the rest of the band is still getting to like show their creative abilities. The only problem is this is where I think lyrically, this might be the worst song on the album for me. This is the butt rock song. 
before butt rock really became a term ultimately because i do think that they were trying to go for more of an alt rock or grunge kind of vibe throughout this song kind of like i guess maybe a jane's addiction type track but the problem is i do not need to hear about how the smell of a woman's perfume and Durst's ass make him horny and how he just uncontrollably has the urge to have sex. Yeah, these, I, these are I apologize for the mental image I just gave all of you. <laughs> these are the kind of lyrics we don't really need to hear. Um, and the chorus especially um, is are probably some of the silliest lyrics that are delivered with such a straight face that I, I, I just can't. Yeah, and then Aaron Lewis and his whiny ass right before he decided to write bullshit like am I the only one <laughs> which will never let our foot off of Lewis's neck for a song that shitty to begin with but his entire verse it, it just gets back into kind of that stuck territory with the how could you respect yourself you couldn't respect yourself because I didn't respect myself and I couldn't infect myself. What the fuck are you going for, Lewis? <laughs> like, to me, I his entire feature really could just be gutted from this. I get stained as one of the artists that Durst really wants to promote, but it doesn't really, not the way that the Jonathan Davis and Scott Weiland feature would make me want to go listen to one of their records. This puts me off listening to anything Stained would ever do. And Stained does a pretty goddamn good job of doing that because Stained is terrible. Full, full disclosure, back in like the early 2000s, I was a pretty big fan of Stained, but no band has like, has soured so like as much as uh as they have oh uh, i'm grateful to say i was never a fan of this douchebag so uh I, I i know we're basically turning this into a stained review rather than a review of a limp biscuit album but i mean like just given how much durst wanted to push artists he was a fan of and that's kind of a thing that new metal would really do you kind of can't help but bring it up, <laughs> especially yeah. if it gets some cheap laughs. Uh, I guess the last actual song on the record before we just uh, kind of do, do we really need to talk about a lesson learned or the outro that much? Um, we definitely don't need to talk about a lesson learned because that song is it, that that song is a placeholder. It, it's filler and like even during the live shows they literally just use the instrumental to kind of like be a break between songs really and then Durst just talks to the crowd and then boom next song so lesson learned it just exists but show me what you got at least it's an energetic I guess you could call it a closing number it works much better as a closing number than any of the BS towards the end. Yeah. I mean, at least show me what you got does kind of have that new metal, get the fuck up energy to it. Um, it really is just the shout out track again. Yep. Instead of Indigo Flow from $3 Bill Y'all, here we get cities that Durst is a fan of 
a random transphobic line or casual transphobia line, I guess you could put it with the, uh, I spit on a boy named Tina in Pasadena bit, which I, I get the idea of transgender being not being as like prevalent of a thing back in the night, the late 1990s. But at the same time, I can't help but go like that is some slimy douchey lyrics right there dude what the fuck were you thinking yeah i i i can't make any sort of excuse for that that is that is just a bad a bad line that should never get a pass yeah like uh not to like throw anybody under the bus really or like imp- directly imply anything my guess is it was just a, intended as a dumb line on the song but like like you said, I don't think either of us would justify that in any capacity. Um, then the rest of it is Durst shouting out all of the bands and all of the people who are either featured on the album or not featured at all because he does he does mention Eminem on the song, even though, like we mentioned, his song got cut from the record. They mentioned Korn, mentions his brother, mentions his daughter, which... That that is all kinds of also sketchy too to me because literally you're though basically he mentions his daughter Adriana who would have been a teenager at least by the time this album came out. Hmm. So that's got to be kind of awkward having a song like Nookie be all over the radio and be like, "That's my dad right there." Yeah. Uh, and then mentioning Method Man, I, I do kind of laugh and go, now that I don't know if I'd call it a good line necessarily, but the Scott Weiland, the melody man, if you can't sing it, then nobody can bit. I don't know. I kind of grin at that. I guess, I guess it could be nostalgia or just, you know, missing Scott Weiland, I guess. Yeah. Um, it might be a little bit of both. Yeah. Let, let's go with both. But um, yeah, now this, do you th- do you think "Show Me What You Got" would have been um, like? Do you think that could have been a single or or like one of those um, live videos where the video is basically just them on tour over the summer? I think it would have worked better as a live video, but I I don't know if this would have gotten away with being a single, really, especially with the course just now. I want somebody, anybody, everybody to get the fuck up. I don't think that would go very far on radio then again there. break stuff got released as a single so who the hell i don't know i don't know man uh yeah we're we're gonna gloss over lesson learned because it it exists and then the outro which is literally just the intro but not slowed down and then a matt pinfield little skit towards the end about hating boy bands it's it, it's a it's a cute skit, but that's really all it is. Um, I find the Les Claypool skit to be funnier. Same, because Les Claypool is just he's he's just funny. He's just any couple of seconds making me think I could be listening to Primus right now is a good thing. Same. Uh, I guess kind of. I don't really know how to really discuss the fallout of this record because it kind of ties into Woodstock and kind of ties into the next record, really. So I guess any closing thoughts, really? Um, oh, 
um, we'll, 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 we'll cover our, our top three tracks on the record in a second, but closing thoughts. So while musically I may prefer $3 bill y'all just because it's a little bit heavier, it's a little more raw in terms of its energy. I can say objectively, I use that term loosely, um, objectively, this this is a better produced album. It, you can hear the budget in terms of the production. Musically, there's still like interesting things going on. Obviously, the like Wes and his brother are cre- like creative geniuses. Sam and John are like um, are excellent additions to the rhythm section. And then Fred Durst, he's Fred Durst, but he does what he does. At, at his best, he, he's, a, he's a good performer, not so much a great lyricist. Yeah, and, and, and I guess maybe that's just kind of the thing is that he never really claims to be, but at the same time, you kind of get a little bit of that vibe, especially with the merch at the time with the whole Limp Biscuit is better than everybody merch that was everywhere at that point. So they were already just kind of being confrontational just right off the bat about it. But for me, normally I don't advocate for trying to cater to a bigger audience. But personally, I would actually argue Biscuit at least did it generally pretty well without alienating too many of the new metal crowds. Like I had kind of mentioned bringing up the brief feud with Slipknot. So I kind of just go that, yeah, it is kind of a well-produced mainstream rock album coming from the new metal world. Would you would you say this is like the black album of new metal, or are there other examples that are probably better fit for that for I, that comparison? I would say follow the leader is probably a better album to really choose from as flawed as follow the leader is and i think issues is a better record than follow the leader i would say basically this album in particular and follow the leader were like if you had those two albums and you were in high school and those were like the two most in-demand records i can imagine you were probably like the coolest kid in the classroom yeah that makes sense but so, my thing with uh, my thing with significant other is that as dated as it sounds, it's still a, you can still sit down, listen to it and enjoy it for what it is. I'm not going to act like this is like some on one hand, it could be a genre defining album, but by no means like are we calling any of these albums masterpieces, but Honestly, I if you were looking to get into this band, this would probably be the album I would recommend of the four we're doing episodes on. Yeah, I think I think this is a better starting point than $3 bill y'all. Yeah, $3 bill y'all you can come back to once you've heard this one, I would personally say. So, here's how we're going to do our top 3. So just to make things more interesting, you are not allowed to pick any of the singles. Ooh, okay, that works. Um, I would go Nobody Like You, probably 1999, and um, and I'll go with Trust. Okay. Um, I I would go Nobody Like You, Trust, 
and show me what you got. Okay, that that's completely fair. I can respect my my, my number four would have been uh, don't go off wandering. Yeah, exactly. Just because it does show a little bit more of the creative side of the band, I guess. And plus, what that is one of the notable West uses a seven string on that song, which. Yeah, that's the really big thing about the corn albums from this period and Limp Biscuit is just how much they popularized the use of the seven string. Yeah. Um there there's a there's a lot of there, there's a lot of like that sort of innovation that would carry on beyond beyond uh, the peak of new metal, which is why I don't agree with writing off the genre altogether. Yeah, I mean, like, without the idea of the seven string being a thing, would we have stuff like Meshuggah or Nevermore, you know, a later example, Periphery? Or, or, or bands like Trivium um, and, that, and that whole scene. Yeah, new wave of American heavy metal type stuff. So, you know, at, at least on the, like, musical side of things, at least there's some attempt at innovation in terms of just like guitar work you know despite the fact most of new metal just basically being like how can we detune our strings and just play like the first couple of frets but at least with something like biscuit there was at least that attempt to have some creativity to the riffs even if they were simple yeah so I guess with that in mind, the only way I guess we can conclude this episode of The Rise and Squall of Limp Biscuit is uh, we will see you in our spinoff marquee episode of Trainwreck Woodstock 99. We'll see you guys at Woodstock 99, for better or for worse. Mwahaha. And until then, Nick, where can everyone find you online? Super Saiyan Death Metal God on Instagram. I post movies, album covers, video games I happen to be playing. As well, I mod for Catherine Isabel, the actress behind classic horror movies like Ginger Snaps, American Mary, horror shows like Hannibal and The Order. So go shoot her a follow on Twitch. We'll gift you subs, everything in her chat. She's not streaming at the moment, but when she comes back, come say hi. Awesome. And you guys can find me on Twitter at CaptainK42. You can check out my quick thoughts on letterbox.com slash CoachK42. And you can follow Renegade Pop Culture on Facebook and Twitter at Ren Pop Culture. We're also on YouTube. You can find us on Podchaser, The Banana Meter. Listen to all of our podcasts on Anchor, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, etc. And last but not least, everything can be found at renegadepopculture.com. In escape, so do we. That'll do it for this episode of Renegade Jukebox. We will catch you guys later. Peace out. We did this podcast all for the nookie.